I'm Woody Huffines, and this is the Owner's Voyage Podcast, a journey to business ownership. In this podcast, we'll talk about how to make that journey more fun, more rewarding, hopefully more profitable, as well as tips for staying away from potholes, dead ends, traps, and washed out bridges. We hope you join us. Welcome to the Owner's Voyage Podcast, episode number 34, an interview with Katherine Monson. Catherine is the president and CEO of Fast Signs International, as well as helping direct propel brands, and is the chair of the International Franchise Association for this year. And there's a surprise in the podcast about next year. Catherine is a driven and inspirational leader that focuses on culture within her organization and driving the culture of small business and franchising in the United States and around the world. It was a pleasure to speak with her. I hope you enjoy the interview. Usually at this point, the host would do an introduction. And in this case, that's just in the too hard pile because you start looking at how you're going to introduce Catherine Monson. And it's an inspirational past and overcoming some difficulties in childhood story. And it's a where do we have information where she's been interviewed? And you're looking at Forbes and Fortune and Inc. and Entrepreneur. Or if you look at pictures, it's pictures of her with political leaders from Donald Trump down to local congressmen. And, and if you're going to talk about awards, there's inspirational executive awards. There's awards for the industries that she's been in. There's awards for the International Franchise Association. And at the end of the day, it just becomes too hard to do that succinctly. So instead of trying to go through all that, Catherine, thank you for joining us. Woody, it is an honor and a privilege to be here today. So let's start out talking a little bit about the International Franchise Association. I will say this. You picked a great year to be the chair. <laughs> Yep, exactly right. It was intentional, not. So, so how long have you been involved with the IFA? So I'm first going to start with how long I've been involved in franchising. Um, I have friends who say I should just say more than 20 years because when I say 40 years, you'll figure out I'm really, really old. And for all the money I spend on anti-aging products, <laughs> probably shouldn't make it that easy to calculate my age. But I started without knowing I was getting into franchising with a little franchisor called Sir Speedy Printing Centers in August of 1980, so just over 40 years ago. And what I found there is I fell in love with franchising. I fell in love with franchising because I get to make a difference in people's lives. I get to help people get in business for themselves, but not by themselves with all of the power of a brand and training and marketing and advertising and supply chain and allowing them to create wealth for their families and put their kids through college and pay for their retirement and help them create economic output and jobs. I mean, it is, it is like it just, it, to me, it is a giving, uh, occupation. I get to give value to other people. So long time ago, 40 years ago, I got into franchising. And probably 25 years ago, I started to get very active in the International Franchise Association, which is the not only the U.S.'s, but the world's uh, oldest and largest organization about franchising, industry association, trade association. And it started by doing committee work and then speaking at conventions and conferences. And then I was invited in 2007 to join the board of directors and have been on the board ever since and then was elected into the chairs four years ago. And yes, 2020 is not necessarily the year I envisioned for my chair year because I had certain things that I wanted to get done. Instead, we've been focused on getting 
franchising through the pandemic. But the great news for me is I have been elected to a second year as chair. Uh, maybe they felt sorry for me. Maybe they thought, <laughs> boy, we need to give her something to do when it won't be in a pandemic. But I think part of 2021 will still be a pandemic. But so I'll have a two-year term. I'll be the first chair to have a two-year term. Um, but so the IFA's role is to protect, promote, and enhance franchising. So the protect part is about government relations. And, you know, just because someone becomes a congressman, becomes a House member, becomes a, a senator, or becomes president, doesn't mean they understand what franchising is. They don't understand that the franchisee is an independent contractor. And for a small fee called a royalty, they get the use of the brand's name and all the training and all the support. They often think that a franchise is a big company, right? So part of our protect is government relations and educating lawmakers. The promote is to, you know, really help people understand the value that franchising can bring. And what I love about franchising, it is the most democratic wealth creation model. Anyone, whether they're white, black, red, or purple, if they're male, female, if they're tall or short, it doesn't matter, can be successful uh, as a franchisee um, with all that benefit that comes of being in business for yourself and not by yourself. And that allows this great wealth creation for for franchisees. Um, so protect, promote, enhance, great education for franchisors, for franchisees, um, just making franchising better. So my vision for my chair year of 2020 was to really focus on best practices in franchising and motivating those few franchisors that are not great to become great. A bad franchisor hurts all of franchising because a bad franchisor will lead to unhappy franchisees who will go talk to their congressman and then a law will be drafted. Uh, and so instead of needing to fight poorly thought out laws, if we can get everybody to be a great franchisor, there won't be a need for those kinds of things. So uh, hopefully that'll be my my role in 2021 because 2020 is all about the pandemic. Well, that was the next question I was going to say was what, what what would you have focused on? And it looks like they've given you a do-over. They've given me a second chance. <laughs> Talking about the pandemic from the standpoint of the of what's happened to business. I, I, I kid, I spent, I had small businesses 40 years ago and decided I needed to do something a little more steady. And, and I've, and I've said that I traded unhappiness for, un, or I traded uncertainty for unhappiness and spent a long time in Fortune 500. And then of late, I have traded unhappiness for uncertainty. <laughs> And one of the things that one of the aphorisms that I'm particularly fond of is that the the pain of uncertainty is worse than the certainty of pain. And there's a lot of things about small business that are uncertainty. Do you see the things that we have experienced in 2020 as different in kind or just in degree? in terms of our uncertainty? You know, that's a great question. And I really think it's more degree. I don't think it's in kind. I mean, yes, we haven't had an, a pandemic in our generation, right? It's been a hundred years. But, you know, the big uh, uncertainty of how long will it last and what businesses get to be open and what businesses get to be closed and what will be the econ economic impact. Um, I think it's similar to, you know, the 2008, 2009 recession. It's just the degree is so much more. And that's and that's interesting to me, because as as you get old, I was talking to somebody this week about I used to debate in high school and college. I was a debater, and so in as far back as 1976, I was intimately involved in energy policy because that was right after the oil crisis and the energy policy, and that was a debate topic. So I'm old enough to remember all of the quotes about there will be no oil in the year 2000. Oil will be done, and I think uh, to some extent, as you get older, you've 
seen some perturbations and you've seen some ups and downs, and it makes you a little more sanguine about that this is not different in kind. What do you think are going to be the important things for small businesses to focus on as we work through the pandemic and we work through the possibility of having a less than favorable business environment? Uh, another great question. So, you know, I collect a lot of quotes and I um, use them to fill my mind and my spirit. And there's one that I picked to be the theme of how we are going to get through the pandemic. And it's a Zig Ziglar quote. And it says, expect the best prepare for the worst and capitalize on what comes. So that expect the best is all about positive mindset, right? And even in a pandemic, we can choose to, to have a positive mindset that we're going to find a way to get through this. And then we have confidence in ourselves that we can. And then the prepare for the worst is do that planning, make sure you've got cash, manage expenses, manage cash flow, uh, be a guerrilla marketer, do what you need to do to get through the tough time. And then capitalize on what comes comes is all about because you have that positive mindset, you be more likely to see opportunities when they present themselves. They may not look like opportunities at the very beginning, but with a negative mindset, you will not see them at all. Uh, so as I think about, you know, the pandemic and, and Fast Signs franchisees, we're in the signage and visual graphics business. Um, originally, we were not on the essential business list. Our employees were not listed as essential workers. Uh, we very quickly taught our franchisees how to be deemed essential. It wasn't until July that the federal government agreed that signage companies were essential. But while in most markets, um, our franchisees' competitors were closed, they had the courage to stay open, having all the employees that could work remotely be remote. But they, we instructed them to reach out to all of their essential customers and have those customers write a letter about how critical it is to have their fast signs open so that they can constantly change the signage. Because if you remember what it was like in the beginning, we didn't know if you were lining up here or lining up there. We didn't know what needed to be done. And hospitals were changing signage almost daily on how they were going to route people through to testing centers and things like that. So that was a, a big positive for us to actually teach that. And we had close to 90 some odd franchisees. Um, they, they, we told them keep the front door locked, have a sign on the front that says open by appointment only, uh, email, phone, you know, send a file. Uh, and we had over 90 that were, uh, you know, knocked on the door by someone from the health department or the city or the licensing department. And they all said, let me show you I am essential. They pulled out the file we taught them to do and not a one was fined and not a one was closed, right? So we actually knew how to communicate that until we became actually. And then we worked with the International Sign Association and our competitors in the franchise space to go to all the 50 governors and the federal government and get sign companies to be deemed essential. But, you know, you, you, the same equipment that we use to cut plastic to make a sign, we can use to cut acrylic to make a sneeze guard, or even more importantly, that we made a lot of late March and in April, intubation boxes and intubation shields. Because of our visibility in the marketplace, a, 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 a small group that was all about protecting health workers reached out to me, sent me an email on a Sunday. I'm on my walk. I make a call. And they say, we know that you guys can cut plastic and acrylic. What if we sent you drawings for intubation boxes? Can you get your franchisees to make them and give them to hospitals, sell them to hospitals, not give them, sell them to hospitals? And by, you know, a week later, our franchisees all had the plans and we were making intubation boxes. And then there was a uh, an improvement to find an intubation shield, which allowed the doctor more room with his hands as he was intubating or the medical professional. But 
if we were down in the dumps and we were focused on woe is me, I probably wouldn't have returned a call on an unsolicited email on a Sunday. And I wouldn't have been with the team on Monday morning saying, oh my God, we got a great opportunity to make a difference and help our franchisees, right? So I think part of it is that mindset, positive mindset. But I just love that Ziegler quote, expect the best, prepare for the worst and capitalize on what comes. And we're going to keep helping our franchisees do that each and every day. And I also use that same quote as I focus on helping the International Franchise Association. It's interesting that you mentioned Zig Ziegler in the process of getting to know you, I read someplace that you had purchased Zig Ziglar's house. Did you ever get a chance to meet him? So I've, I've, yes, and I've had him over for dinner, had him over for dinner twice before he passed away. But I'm a very decisive person. Now, that's a benefit and a disadvantage, right? I mean, I think any of our strong characteristics are two-edged sword, but I'm very decisive. So um, I rented a, a townhome here for six months uh, in January of 2009 when I moved here, and I used that I did a six-month lease. I started house hunting, and I'm working with a real estate agent, and he'd lined up a full day of looking at houses. And if I walk in and I don't like the entryway, I don't need to see the bedrooms. And he'd say, wouldn't you want to see the bedrooms? Like, no, I hate the entry. I'm not going to live in this house. I don't like the location. I don't like the way it looks. No curb appeal, right? So we get to this house after looking at 30, 20 minutes before we're supposed to. And, you know, every good seller of a home knows you're not supposed to be there. So my real estate agent rings the doorbell, gets the lockbox, getting the key out, and the door opens, and there's an elderly man there. And my real estate agent says, hi, I'm Tony, and shakes the elderly man's hand. And I say, hi, I'm Catherine. I'm the buyer. And the elderly man says, I don't shake women's hands. The perfect three-second pause He says, I hug them. So I get this hug from this man. Uh, I walk in and I love the entry and I love the glass back of the house looking at the golf course. I run up the stairs because I love the sweeping curved staircase as the elderly man and his wife are trying to leave the house because they know they're not supposed to be there. And I turn to the left and I'm in this elderly man's office. And here's a picture of this man with George Bush. And this man with George Bush, too. And this man with Ronald Reagan. And this man with Billy Graham. And then I'm thinking, who is this man? And then I see the name Zig Ziglar on an award. It's like, oh, my God, that's Zig Ziglar? <laughs> I run down the stairs. I go through the house. I run into the garage. Poor Jean has flooded the engine of the car because she's been told, and they were trying to sell this house for a year, you can't be there. The car won't start because she's flooded the engine because she's nervous. I knock on the window. She rolls the window down. I look past her as if she doesn't exist. And I say, are you Zig Ziglar? And he says, well, yes, I am. So he gets out of the car. He and Zig and I and my real estate agent had this most delightful half-hour visit in the driveway. I did end up buying that house. And then after I changed every surface, so there wasn't a single floor, ceiling, wall, window that wasn't changed. Nothing structural, but just look, I had him over for dinner twice. It was a wonderful blessing. And and the reason I ask in my wife's wanderings around the Dallas area for a long time, she had the opportunity to meet him. And the, the reason I asked the question is that she had said that he, his personality and his spirit just lit up a room. So true. And that, in that it was interesting that you used the Zig Ziglar quote and that you had gotten to spend time with him because by everything that I've ever seen, he, he was a special man. Very special man and had such a positive impact on the world uh, in changing people's attitudes and teaching people about great servant leadership and being a sales trainer and a motivator. He's just an amazing man. 
So transitioning, you just you you moved to Dallas, two thousand nine, and became president CEO for Fast Signs. What what stimulated that move? It was just the venture capital company looking for a new CEO? Yeah, so I was very happy with the company I was with. I, I started with them, as I told you, in, in 1980. And then we became, we grew that company from under 200 uh, Search Media locations over 850. We bought a, uh, a printing franchisor in, the, in Europe. It was headquartered in the Netherlands with operations in the Netherlands, France, and Austria. I got the great opportunity to run that for two and a half years. Now, my husband at the time was not interested in relocating to Europe, which that should have been a sign right then. Uh, but uh, those, those signs are easier to see in retrospect. They really are a lot easier to see in retrospect. Uh, so for two and a half years, I commuted two weeks a month at home, two weeks a month in Amsterdam or in France or Austria. And then we bought our biggest competitor in the United States, and I became president of Pimp, Pimp Printing. And I just um, loved it, absolutely uh, loved franchising. I loved running that company. I loved the opportunity to be at Pit Printing, and I had no plans to leave. And I got a phone call from uh, the CEO of the private equity firm Work Capital Group who said, uh, you know, we got our eye on you. We think you'd be perfect to be the CEO of one of our portfolio companies. And uh, I just said, where's it located? You need to know as a Southern California girl. I said, where's it located? He said, Dallas, Texas. I laughed out loud and said, there's not a chance in hell I would ever leave Southern California for Dallas. And the moral of that story is you never say there's never a chance. <laughs> and he said, let me tell you why you need to keep your mind open to this. And let me tell you about the company. And let me tell you why we think you'd be perfect. And uh, six months later, I became CEO of FastSign. So they started courting me in the summer of 2008. It was a tough interview process. They wanted to be sure. Um, and uh, I've loved every minute. It's been the best move I've ever made. Yes, it's scary to move by yourself away from your uh, friends and family uh, in Southern California to come someplace where you really don't know anybody, but it's been the best move I've made. I've loved what we've done with the company. We've really transformed it from a, a retail walk-in um reactive model to a proactive business development comprehensive solutions model. Our uh, average unit volumes have increased dramatically. Our franchisee profitability has increased dramatically. Um, our franchisee satisfaction is through the roof. Uh, and then because I was a female CEO, I had the opportunities for things like to be on Undercover Boss. They were looking for female CEOs and they let uh, somebody know that who told them about me. And it was just, I mean, then, then that led to more television interviews and more radio interviews. I mean, just this has been the biggest blessing in the world, uh, getting to be the CEO of FastSigns. So what kind of growth has FastSigns experienced since 2009? We had just about 500 locations. We're at 748 today. Uh, we are now in 10 countries. I think we were in six at that particular time. Average unit volume was $500,000 a year. It's now close to $900,000 a year. Average franchisee profitability in 2009 was 12.9%. It now averages 20.4%. And our profit leaders average 31%. And we know that we can... Uh, teach all of our franchisees those same best practices as our profit leaders. And, and we're just, you know, I mean, every year we do a financial benchmark survey. Every year we're teaching our franchisees what they need to do to improve their profitability because it's not about sales volume. As you know, being a business owner, it's about profit because you can't 
put food on the table with sales. You can only put food on the table with profit. Well, and it's interesting the way you answered that question and, and, and asking the question, because the next question was going to be about the four strategic objectives that you have. And, and, it's, and it's clear that that profitability, sales growth, franchisee satisfaction and branding and growing and growing the brand has been central to your success in doing this. Of those, which has been the most difficult? You know, uh, perhaps it's a shortcoming because um, of mine, because I really uh, believe in positive outlook and hard work, and hard work gets results. So I would say... Um, if you're doing the right things, none of those things are hard. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy, right? You have to work hard. You have to be consistent. You got to have your whole corporate team aligned. Um, I've, I've got an amazing team and, and they get a lot of great initiatives created and, and completed. We had never as a company had a focus on franchisee profitability until I got here. Uh, so. But because we did focus on it, franchisees were eager. In fact, what's fascinating is, you know, just a couple years after I created those four key strategic objectives, and the first was to increase franchisee profitability by 50, 50%. We've achieved that, and now we set the second, we've redone it as further increase another 25%. Uh, increase average unit volume to a million dollars, increase the value of the brand. We measure the value of the brand two ways. One is uh, aided and unaided market awareness testing, uh, brand awareness testing. And then the other is what is the resale multiple franchisees get when they sell their business? Because businesses sell as a multiple of profit, right? And we've seen that grow from two two times, from two yeah. times to 3.3 times, right? And, and then, you know, increase franchisee satisfaction, which we measure every year and we can track. But I would say while we had, as a company had never focused on profitability, once we started, our franchisees were like all over it. Now, there might have been that little bit of difficulty in the beginning where not every franchisee had monthly financial statements. They didn't necessarily use our chart of accounts, which made it difficult, difficult to do comparison. But after, you know, two years, everybody's like focused on the right chart of accounts and wanting to measure their KPIs against other people. So now I'll also tell you that I'm a workaholic and, um, I don't think that that's a negative. It, it, I get great joy out of accomplishing great things. Uh, so this is, you know, it's not been a simple 40 hour a week kind of a gig, but every day I go home excited and love what I'm doing. How much of, how much culture, how much of the standard that they had used or the way that they did business, did you have to change? You know, that's interesting. That's a great question. Um, and I will tell you that I had, uh, 50, 50% turnover in my first 12 months here. Now, I believe that's because I came in with a completely different way of looking at the business. And this is going to sound crazy. And of course, today in a pandemic, you can't tell anyway. But the parking lot never got full until about 8.15 and was empty at 4.59 every day. And people walked through the halls slowly. And now when people can be here, no one's leaving at five because we got important, exciting stuff to do. And it's not like I'm counting hours, but if you're working on big meaty objectives, you're not out the door at 459 necessarily. And people walk through the halls when they're here because you're going to see a big empty building when I take you on a tour um, because they got, they got things to do. So I created intentionally a culture that was 
focused on results, not activity. I think it's all about results, not being busy, focused on results, focused on really driving franchisee satisfaction, growth, profitability. And it's all about accountability, right? And then it's about prioritizing and working on the most important things. There were a lot of people who could not handle the change of what I was looking for. And so some of them changed, some people changed because of a different management environment and blossomed. And some people chose to to find employment elsewhere. And some I helped find employment elsewhere. You know, I think the single most important thing any CEO can do is create the culture and maintain the culture. Because if you don't do that intentionally, there will be a culture that's created anyway, and you won't be in charge of it. So as you've coached and improved the organization, how do you leverage the culture that you've developed at headquarters in an effective way to help your franchisees adopt, establish, and and promulgate that same culture? So, you know, part of, you know, when I think about creating culture, you've got to be able to put words around it, describe it. And, uh, when I take you on a tour of the building a little bit later, you're going to see that several places in the building, we actually have our values on the wall. We have our four key strategic objectives on the wall. Part of that is reinforcing it. Every month we have a, a company meeting. Uh, now they're all virtual, but we're reinforcing the four key strategic objectives. We're reinforcing the company culture. We're praising people for things they did well in living the culture or fulfilling the four key strategic objectives. So there's a constant reinforcement, right? Um, and so that, that I think is a really important part of leadership. And then I think another part of leadership is you got to be able to create the, the mental picture of where people are going. Whether you call that strategic planning or visioning, you got to be able to describe what this group of very happy, successful franchisees is going to look like and what the team, the corporate team that's getting them there, what they need to do and have all that, those corporate team members buy into that vision and know what great looks like, right? And so that's part of that visioning and strategic focus. And I think it's a key part of any leader's role is to really drive for results. And to some degree, that means pushing people pushing people outside of their comfort zone. The human nature is to take the easy way out unless you've got accountability and you've got some uh, driving for results there. And I think a, another key role is building high-performance team, hiring people who are better than you, smarter than you, setting challenging goals, great, you know, making sure you have great people. And then I think interpersonal skills and emotional intelligence are critical for leaders. I mean, I have... I am not perfect. I'm far from perfect. But I've gotten to a point in my emotional intelligence where I can start to feel if I'm getting stressed out. I can start to feeling like I want to get short with somebody and I can intentionally stop it from coming out of my mouth or coming out in my body language. I couldn't do that 20 years ago. I probably didn't do it very well 10 years ago, but I can do it now. And so I think developing that emotional intelligence is really important. And, you know, I try to also be an example. Um, I, one of the things I like to talk about is my leadership shadow. And if I cast a big enough leadership shadow, when I'm not here, people know what to do. They don't have to say, God, I need to ask Catherine what to do next. But this leadership shadow by, you know, leading through personal excellence. And I think that's critical and important. And I think it's inspiring. I'm also a big believer in, um, this is going to sound crazy, I know, Loving on your people. Now, you got to be careful how you say that these days. This is this is not at all, you know, sexual <laughs> harassment. But, I mean, my team knows if if one of our franchisees, a family member of a franchisee, 
struggling with cancer, if there's a death in the family, if one of my employees is sick, if somebody's facing a health crisis, I mean, they know they got to tell me right away. And then there's going to be things that I do to let that person, whether it's an employee or a franchisee, know that they're in, being loved and cared for. And that's personal cards and love texts and things like that that I do on a regular basis to let people know uh, that I'm thinking about them. So I'm going to just show you a text string right here from one of my franchisees who is fighting prostate cancer. And so I just every day send him love. He does not have to respond to the love, but I send him the love. The impact that that little text has on this franchisee would blow your mind, just blow your mind. And so there's a part of my leadership style that's about love. One of the things that I wanted to ask uh, is what's the most important skill for a leader to develop? And I think I've got the answer. I think it's caring because people will work their heart out for you if they know you care about them. Don't show me how much you know. Show me how much you care. Exactly right. I can't. <laughs> there's, about, there's about four Stephen Coveys on that one thing. <laughs> and and I when while the people who who follow the podcast know that one of my favorite books about about leadership and organization and aligning processes, systems, and people is the Fifth Discipline by Peter Singe. And and having that shared vision is one of the disciplines that that, that the Center for the Fifth Discipline has has worked on since I guess the book probably came out in 19, 18, 19, 1989, 1992. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so talk a little bit about how from a franchise perspective, because as my belief is you need to have processes and systems and people, and it doesn't matter how good the people are. If the process isn't the right process that's supported by the correct systems, they're going to struggle to make things happen. How do you uh, how does Fast Signs International approach that processes, systems, and people approach? So, from a process standpoint, we have a business model that includes sales and marketing management, production management, employee management. Something's missing, business and financial management. And for each of those things, we have sub-processes. So we teach our franchisees, whether, no matter which thing you're talking about, there's a nine-step solution selling system. That's part of the sales process, teaching the nine-step solution selling system. From a, a business and financial management standpoint, part of the process is an annual business plan. It's uh, having a, a budget. It's comparing your financial results every month against your budget. It's looking at your business plan every month at a minimum and making sure you're doing the things you're supposed to. So we have all those processes. We also have some really good systems. We've got a, a center management system, uh, more than a point of sale system. You know, we've got very good systems where our point of sale system is tied into a, uh, a net promoter score, customer satisfaction survey. So X number of days after a job is delivered to a customer, the customer is getting the net promoter score question. And then we're looking at the responses of those. And we're also looking at the, the, not just the numerical ranking that's given, but the actual comments that are doing. So we get a voice of the customer and then we take that voice of the customer and we educate the franchisees on where the shortcomings are and how to get better in those things. So we've got lots of systems. We got lots of process. And then I think people comes down to 
you know, we really try to only uh, grant franchises to folks that uh, we have confidence will follow our system because we actually do have one. And one of the benefits of being a franchisee is you don't have to recreate the wheel. You don't have to recreate the system. You just have to execute well. And then on, uh, as a little bit of a tangent, I happen to think that there are five common characteristics to all highly successful people. And the great news is they're all learned skills. And those five common characteristics are positive mental attitude, goal-directed behavior, self-motivation, a sense of urgency, and never stopping learning. And I work every day to get better at least in one of those things, right? I mean, I, I'm reading books on leadership and emotional intelligence all the time, and I'm watching TED Talks and listening to podcasts and trying to, you know, get better and better and better at what I can be and do as a leader. Likewise, I teach my corporate team that. Likewise... We spend time teaching our franchisees that, and I've seen franchisees teach their employees that. And so that's about people, right? We can grow and develop people, um, and we can inspire them, and we can teach them how to be more successful by getting better at positive mindset and goal-directed behavior and self-motivation and never stopping learning. So last last, last question. I'm, there's, I've got 27, but we, we'll have to stop eventually. You're, you're – pretty busy kind of lady. There's been a, a, a consolidation or a, a unique grouping of in the franchise space for restaurants for a long time, where the Outback Steakhouse has, there's a family of restaurants that's all Outback Steakhouse, but they're all pretty much in the same industry. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> while they're all franchises, the holding company has a number of different business lines. Uh, one of the things that seems to be a trend in franchising is with that process together and with the knowledge and the information that you have about how to build franchises, do you see as an opportunity for growth for fast science to spread out a little bit and find other business lines and opportunity that are B2B kind of businesses, but not necessarily the exact same business that you're in, in terms of signage and promotion? Well, I would say um, the Nerds to Go addition to our family is a, a great example of us doing that, right? Um, I think that there are best practices in being a franchisor, and I think we're pretty darn good at implementing those best practices. In my opinion, there's really five parts to that, right? The best practice, number one, focus on franchisee profitability, right? If you're doing something every day, every week, every month to make your franchisees more profitable, that's going to lead to happy franchisees. So once you got focus on profitability, then you focus on sales growth. And that's critically important, right? You got those two things together. Don't focus on sales growth if you don't got good profitability because high volume, low margin is a horrible way to live. If I only lose a dollar a sign, how many do I got to sell to break even? It's exactly (laughs) right. Exactly right. Then it's to... sell and open more locations, right? We the, the private equity term is white space, right? How much white space do you have? Well, you know, it is true that with Fast Signs, we have over 200 open and approved remaining markets in the U.S. At the same time, we're completely sold out. There's no open market. There's no white space in Dallas, Fort Worth, Minneapolis, Denver, Atlanta. So, I mean, I got a whole list of those where there's no growth opportunity uh, for us as far as adding locations. So, we got profitability, gross sales, uh, 
sell and open centers. And when you say sell and open, you also want them to ramp and be successful, right? So that's, that's a given. And then it's, um, focusing on great communication and franchisee satisfaction. And it almost is a flywheel. You work on those five things all the time. And then that it takes on a life of its own. In other words, there's this energy generated. There's great franchise validation, uh, by franchise candidates. You're getting them open. They're making money. They're happy. You're selling more franchises. It just, there's this great flywheel of, uh, of energy creation, uh, that comes as a result. So if you're good at those things, then you can also, you know, take that, whether it's in signs or also, you know, IT and computer support or any other B2B space. I cannot tell you how enjoyable this has been for me and how much I appreciate all of the things that you've got going on with the IFA coming up and with the acquisition and with all of the business that you've got uh, and all the balls that you have in the air taking the time to set them down to talk with me. And I, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. Well, it has been a load of fun for me too, Woody. I've enjoyed it. Thank you, Catherine. Well, that was the interview with Catherine Monson, and what a pleasure it was to spend some time with Catherine. I hope you found uh, things of value that you can use for your organization and for your aspirational dreams, because Catherine is certainly an aspirational leader. It's episode number 34 of the Owners of Words podcast, an interview with Catherine Monson.